Welcome back to this podcast today. Uh, it would be no surprise that I'm joined by Anna, uh, but somewhat amazingly, we've been able to get Mark to come back. Um, Mark Willis, who you'll know, did a previous one with us. Um, and today we're going to take on a, a topic that is very dear to my heart, which is uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, and we'll try and chunk it up a little bit. We know that some of our podcasts have, have late have been a little bit long because Anna and I have got overexcited. Um, so we'll try and chunk this one up a bit for you. Um, so look, this is clearly a, a really important area. It's quite a complex area. And I think it's fair to say it's not entirely clear from any guidance that we've got a very clear pathway on, on managing these patients. So, Mark, in the last podcast, uh, we we kind of opened with what I think was really useful, uh, a sort of fairly high level summary of, you know, CNS, PNS, and then, you know, thinking about that neuromuscular group and where they where they sit. So, again, I just wondered if you could open up with that and maybe just give us the the sort of very simple guide of of how to view these kind of neurological conditions. Yeah, thanks, Ricky. Yeah, so I thought I'd just try and clarify this because I wasn't sure I was entirely clear about it in the last podcast. And some of these terms are interchangeably used sometimes as well. So I thought just just to clarify what we mean by CNS, PNS and central toxicities and peripheral toxicities. So I think, as I said before, the, the central nervous system, as we all know, includes the brain and the spinal cord, to the level of about L1. And then we think of the peripheral nervous system as everything sort of outside of that but not including the neuromuscular junction and the muscle, which we think of as separate. But when we talk about neurotoxicities in relation to immunotherapy, um, and in particular peripheral toxicities, we are, we are kind of including everything outside the central nervous system. So that's the peripheral nervous system, and also to include the neuromuscular junction and the muscle, which is sometimes also referred to in literature as neuromuscular toxicities. So it's a bit of just pedantics, but just to kind of clarify is helpful. And then just as an additional thing, it's also we mustn't forget that the cranial nerves are part of the peripheral nervous system and also the autonomic nervous system, where neurotoxicities have also been reported and will become relevant to today's discussion about Guillain-Barre syndrome as well, I think. So thank you. No, that's great. And um, and yeah, the autonomic thing is, again, something I know quite well um, in terms of the, the symptoms. So again, I'm, I'm really keen to kind of have that discussion today. So so look, what we will do is maybe if we just start and, and actually I, I'll probably come back to you, Mark, uh, first, is maybe if you could just tell us, and I know this is, I find this bit quite difficult. So I'm going to be really open and honest. I find it difficult. It feels like that there's lots of terminology in the in the literature, GBS, GBS mimic, GBS-like, uh, acute demyelinating, polyneuropathy. It feels like there's lots of terms. And it may be actually that we don't know what the right term is or or how to use those terms. But maybe is there a, a unified way to do it? And if there's not, is there a simple way that day to day we can think about these different headings? Yeah, so I agree with that. So the literature tends to refer to peripheral neuropathies. And then we'll also talk about GBS-like presentations or kind of immune-mediated polyradicular neuropathies. So what I thought might be helpful was to kind of go back to what we mean by that outside of immunotherapy and what we mean by peripheral neuropathy and what we mean by GBS or Guillain-Barre syndrome. And then perhaps we can kind of talk later about the 
similarities or the differences that you might see in immune-mediated conditions that are similar. So in, in the kind of normal neurology world, if we're talking about peripheral neuropathies, we're talking about a sort of polyneuropathy, a length-dependent neuropathy. So these are patients where they usually would kind of start with symptoms in their feet, so perhaps some sensory symptoms, and then the onset is more insidious. So this is kind of evolving over weeks, months, and you'll get that ascending sensory pattern up to the knees. And then when it, when it gets to about the knees, it will then start to develop in the hands because it's length dependent and it's dependent on the, obviously the length of the nerve. And then that can also involve sort of motor weakness as well. But that's generally what we would refer to as a peripheral neuropathy. And the causes of that generally are very, very wide. Um, thinking of think the most common causes, alcohol, diabetes, etc. And I, those tend to be axonal neuropathies. So that's the kind of the normal stuff. And then when we're thinking about sort of Guillain-Barre syndrome outside of immunotherapy, as we all know, this is an immune-mediated condition. So normally related to patients who have recently had a vaccine or a respiratory tract infection or a diarrheal illness, which tends to be sort of campylobacter most commonly. And then again, symptoms might start distally, but then there's this quite rapid sort of progressive sensory motor uh, involvement to, to kind of result in a flaccid tetraparesis, um, which is associated with areflexia. And then obviously there's the, the concern that there's then bulbar involvement with you know, issues with speech and swallowing and respiratory dysfunction. And the way we classify that normally is the tempo of the onset. So from patient starting symptoms, kind of the worst point, the nadir has to be within four weeks for a diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome. And then anything after that, we're sort of looking at subacute presentations or even kind of chronic inflammatory neuropathy such as CIDP. So the confusing thing is within Guillain-Barre syndrome, in general, there are also variants of it. So you sometimes see this term AIDP, which is an acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. And there's also these axonal variants. So AMAN and AMSAM, you sometimes see. So acute um, motor axonal neuropathy or acute motor sensory axonal neuropathy. So the acute neuropathy can either be demyelinating AIDP or axonal AMAN or AMSAN. And then just to complicate things even further, there's other variants like Miller-Fisher syndrome or Bickerstaff's. So I think when we're talking about immunotherapy-related Guillain-Barre syndrome, again, the literature uses different terms. So it says GBS-like or it says immune-related demyelinating um, kind of polyneuropathy. I think what they're referring to, and it's not entirely clear all the time in the literature, but what they're referring to is more of an acute presentation of uh, sensory motor involvement, plus or minus kind of bulbar symptoms as well, which is not always present or doesn't seem to be present in all of in, in every presentation that's been described in the literature. So that's a lot of terminology and a lot of, <laughs> I hope that kind of makes some sort of sense. But um, yeah, I think that's what we're talking about when we're talking about immunotherapy related GBS like it, it is, is those more acute presentations. And and the literature also talks about neuropathy in the in the context of immunotherapy but what it tends to be referring to is more of a sensory neuropathy is what is what seems to be in the literature
Okay. And that, so then, Anna, maybe from your perspective, thinking about the immune system from a, an IO toxicity perspective or a, a, an IO stimulation perspective, what do we think or and do we know, what do we think's going on in terms of why is the immune system starting to cause a GBS-like syndrome? Do we, do we know anything about that? I mean, I think it's 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 difficult, isn't it? And and I I think with a lot of the immunotherapy toxicities, it, it it all comes down to probably quite a similar pathology, and it comes down to sort of is it the same process that we see in different organs, or is it a completely different pathology every time we see a different organ affected? And I think partly represented by the fact that we see patients that have three or four toxicities at the same time, um, I think we are very much of the mindset that it is likely that there is a, a, a common a common reason. And that is probably related to the fact that you get direct T-cell um, affecting a particular organ or system, in this in this particular case, the, the nerves. And so I think it's always quite interesting that we 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 align it to different syndromes that we we see classically. So in this case, Guillain-Barre is a really good suggestion of that. But the the likelihood is that it's as a result of the dysregulation that we've caused with our with our checkpoint inhibitors that are actually optimizing the activity of T cells whilst um, also removing its regulation. So I think I think we think it's related to that. We know that in certain rare circumstances there there are autoantibodies associated with Guillain-Barre in 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 sort of in its sort of endogenous form. Uh, certainly, we haven't seen any evidence that that's the case in in immunotherapy, and actually, it probably isn't uh, an autoantibody driven patho- pathology. Um, we also know that there's an association with other infections such as Campylobacter. Again, we don't see that 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 association in immunotherapy. So I think it's it's always the case of, you know, why is it why is this affecting this group of nerves? And and there's always this concept of of sort of cross-reactivity that actually T cells that are recognizing proteins in tumors are also recognizing proteins that they find abnormal in, in this case in the nervous system and causing inflammation in those nerves and 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 ergo the the symptom that we're seeing. So I think it's probably part of the same spectrum um, and incredibly difficult to predict as a result of that. So I think one of the things which we struggle at the moment with the way that we practice clinically is we can't really predict that somebody's going to get Guillain-Barre at the beginning of their treatment. It's, it's the same way that we can't really predict if they're going to get hepatitis or, or, or another toxicity. So it, it's difficult. But I think that always leads to understanding and working out how we then manage those patients is actually thinking about the fact that is there a really quite significant T-cell predominant function in this patient group? And it is quite likely and certainly we haven't got any evidence to suggest that it, that it isn't the case. Okay. Um, and so then just if we think a little bit maybe then about the background. So I think we're saying that we've got T cells that are probably cross-reacting to, you know, similar proteins in the myelin sheath or the axons. Um, and I mean, we've talked before, Anna, about neurological toxicities being about 1% as um, a, a kind of rough estimate. I mean, again, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And I think GBS, again, if you look in the literature, it's probably somewhere between, you know, 0.1% and 0.3% of all patients receiving, you know, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Does that, in your experience, feel about the right percentages for these kind of conditions? Yeah, I mean, I think these these are rare conditions, um, you know, certainly, and, and I've certainly seen it, it definitely happens. It's not it's not sort of one of those things that's so rare that only one person in the country has ever seen it. And we certainly do see it and, and, and it is important to be aware of it. But I'd say it's probably in the region of sort of round 0.1%, possibly. It's difficult to put percentages on it, but that sort of thing. I think it's something that is quite rare. 
I think the rarity of it makes it something that you have to think about. You have to sort of have in your sort of cognitive active differential because of the fact that it's not something you see every day. So it's it's something that really to consider, particularly if people present with sort of a, a classical picture. There's also a little bit of suggestion that there is a, you know, a, a higher predominance in the melanoma population. And I have to say, I've certainly seen it in the melanoma population. So it, it, it would stand to reason that sort of anecdotally that that epidemiology sort of stands, stands that ground. Um, and then again, it possibly also, the question is, is that because of something related to the melanoma or the fact that we use more epinephrine? in melanoma than anywhere else and I think that's a very reasonable question actually is this is this you know more of a feature of combination certainly the the neurological toxicities are see, seen in a higher incidence in people having combination dub, doublet immunotherapy treatments um so so I think again that's an important thing to be aware of and it's always I think that one percent is actually it's all neurological toxicities and there are many things within that so within that it probably makes up about you know 10% of the overall neurological toxicity burden. Um, so it's it's not common, but it's certainly something we see. And as, I, as I've said previously, you know, certainly in, in my region, I'm treating 100 new patients um, every month. So actually, we will see at least one of these a year. So it doesn't, it becomes something that is very much something we need to think about over time as more patients are being treated. Okay, that's that's really useful. And again, so if we think a little bit about the epidemiology, and then I'm going to hand back to Mark to think about the presentation. Again, I think there aren't, there, you know, there there are some case series out there. I know there was a case series that talked about the mean age being about 60, 62, and it said it was a little bit more common in men, and 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 as you allude to, maybe in melanoma, but you know, clearly, like you say, we use a lot of combination in melanoma, and the earlier studies, which mainly uh, 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 recording this, you know, melanoma was using a lot of immunotherapy back then, and now other uh, other things are catching up. In terms of the, the time of onset, Anna, because again, we talk a little bit about this, you know, skin being relatively early, you know, diarrhea, then hepatitis, and, and, and we always make the caveat they can occur at any point, and once you've stopped, the, the median here for me feels like it's around the two, three, four month kind of ballpark, except in all those caveats. Is that fair or do you think we actually can't put a time frame on, on neurological things? I think it is fair. I think um, it seems to be one of the toxicities that happens earlier in treatment rather than later. So obviously we always say, you know, we can see toxicity during and after treatment and up to years afterwards. Um, certainly it seems less common, very much less common to see them in that sort of later stage um, process. I have seen it after one cycle of Ipinevo, so it can happen earlier than that two cycle two, eight week mark. Um, but I think it's certainly an, an earlier toxicity and the majority, certainly the cases that I've seen in the literature and personally um, happen within that first three to four month block of block of treatment as as always it's not to say it can't happen later but it's much less 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 common and again maybe that's in keeping with the number of combination cycles we're using from an ipinevo perspective but certainly it seems to be a, an, an early-ish toxicity i would say great okay so mark let's get into presentation and you 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 alluded to a couple of these points when you were describing, you know, the nerves involved and the the kind of chronology of that and the temporal nature. Maybe just if you could give us a, a fairly broad brush about the sort of symptoms we might see in someone presenting with GBS. And again, if you think there's any similarities or differences to pull out with immune related uh, GBS. Yeah. So, um so typically, you know, in it, the description is this is a, a polyridiculoneuropathy. So we're talking about not just a kind of a length dependent process like you would see in a kind of insidious axonal neuropathy. This is 
peripheral nerves as well as nerve roots as well. So typically patients will present sort of distal sensory symptoms, but then they can uh, kind of rapidly develop um, weakness, which can be both distal and proximal. And then there's also the involvement, you know, the, uh, with bulbar weakness as well. So involving speech and swallowing and most worryingly sort of respiratory dysfunction. So I think if anyone kind of presents, I guess, in that time frame, as you've said, sort of two to three months with some new distal sensory or motor symptoms, you probably need to keep a close eye on them because these things can develop pretty rapidly. So over hours or days. Um, and in terms of the examination, you know, people will be weak. Generally, there'll be a flaccid paralysis and they'll be areflexic. And just to complicate it slightly, people with normal Guillain-Barre syndrome, about 10% or so, are described as having brisk reflexes as well. So just to complicate the picture. And also the main difference we need to think of if you see someone with a particularly a sort of flaccid paraparesis would be a spinal cord syndrome. So although we're kind of taught, you know, medical school that problems with the spinal cord are upper motor neurons because they're in the central nervous system presenting with sort of increased tone and brisk reflexes. That isn't necessarily the case if people present acutely. So you can have an acute spinal cord syndrome where people have a, a, a flaccid weakness with areflexia. So there's a few pointers in the history and the examination you can just think of to try and distinguish the two. So particularly if someone's got involvement of their sphincters. So that, that can happen in Guillain-Barre syndrome, but is rare. So that's more likely to point towards a spinal cord pathology. And if there's a sensory level, obviously that's going to point you more towards the spinal cord as well. And I think in the context of sort of a patient who's got cancer with immunotherapy, it's probably a good idea to be imaging the cord in case there is cord involvement. And, and it, even if there isn't, that might show some enhancement of the nerve roots, which can also be present during a kind of inflammatory polyridiculo neuropathy like Guillain-Barre syndrome as well. So the history in the examination should be, you know, should be consistent with what you're thinking, but there's just a few things just to watch out for to make sure you're not missing a kind of a cord presentation. Okay. Mark, let me just, because uh, you do, you're doing what a, uh, Anna always does and tries to get to investigations before, <laughs> before we tidied up presentation. Mm. So, so as a non-neurologist, um, when I see these kind of symptoms, I just think badness. And I think I start having words like GBS, myasthenia gravis, Miller-Fisher, these kind of words <laughs> go through my, my head without much to hang them on, but they're the words that go through. Could you maybe just give me a really simple kind of couple of things that might help me differentiate in my mind between, you know, myasthenia gravis, GBS, whatever Miller Fisher may or may not mean, just so I, because at the moment this all just feels worrying and scary and, and nerve-like as an, as an idiot oncologist, but yeah. it'd be nice just to almost, is there two or three symptoms that are more consistent with GBS? I think you said it tends to start distally and move proximally. And how is that different to myosina gravis or how would that be different to something like, you know, Miller Fisher or just some really simple things? Yeah, so... So obviously, I mean, neurology is about thinking, firstly, we're always taught, well, where's the anatomical location of where, where this problem is? So the fact the patient's presenting with these kind of distal symptoms that might be moving proximally, again, you kind of feel that that's more, you know, you're more in the peripheral than the central nervous system. And then things that obviously go along 
with that, that kind of corroborate that feeling would be the examination. So if you're thinking this is a kind of a peripheral problem, it's a lower motor neurone problem, you're expecting the tone to be reduced, that's what we mean by flaccid, you'd expect the distribution of weakness to be consistent with that. And again, so Guillain-Barre syndrome normally, you know, distal more than proximal. And then you'd expect, because it's a lower motor neurone problem, for the patient to be areflexic, or at least the, the reflexes to be diminished. So that kind of puts you in that ballpark. In terms of, um, I guess, if we deal with Miller-Fisher syndrome, which is it was a kind of subtype of Guillain-Barre syndrome itself, that, that classically presents with this triad, so of ataxia, areflexia, and ophthalmoplegia. But weakness doesn't seem to be a prominent feature. So that that's, and it's quite distinctive when you see that. So they won't present in this way where they, you know, kind of have this distal tingling and weakness. It it's more unsteadiness of walking, double vision, um, and when you examine them, they haven't got any reflexes. And then myasthenia again is a bit different. So patients may have weakness, but that weakness tends to be proximal rather than distal. They may complain of double vision. Someone might notice that their eyelids are a bit droopy. Their speech might be a bit slurred. Their breathing might be worse. And obviously, there's the classical things with myasthenia where we think of this variability and this fatigue ability. So commonly, people say, oh, I'm on the telephone having a conversation and my speech and it's as if I'm drunk towards the end of the conversation or at the end of the day, I'm watching TV and it's going double and my eyes are a bit droopy. So there's some features that kind of make you think uh, of myasthenia separate to a kind of Guillain-Barre presentation. Of course, in myasthenia, you don't have any sensory involvement and the reflexes should be normal as well. So it's just about pattern recognition, as most things in medicine are. Um, but the first question from a neurologist is always, where in the nervous system are we placing this? And then trying to think of what the differential is from that point onwards. Yeah, that's that's super useful. And are there any thoughts around, you know, you've got probably more experience than anyone of seeing these toxicities in real life. Is that how it how it's borne out? And, and is there anything that, you know, you use maybe as a screening tool if you see a symptom that you're worried might be neurological? Anything you can give us? So I think there's there's always um, it, it's difficult, isn't it? But the, I think that constellation is always really useful. Um, the way that it's the way that it's presented and whether it's progressive is also really really helpful in terms of whether you're thinking about a neurological condition. Um, certainly the ones that I've seen they they do progress. They don't just get a sudden a sudden um, nervous entity that then stays there. You know they they get ongoing symptoms, progressive symptoms. Um, the absence of pain I think is actually really helpful in terms of you know the other option quite a lot and often our patients is it a muscular thing have they got a myositis that's causing problems which often is is not always but often associated with myalgia or more they describe an ache rather than a pain but um but actually is there pain because if if there isn't obviously it's not a, it's not a hundred percent rule but most of the time that that leads me to worry that it's more muscular than it is neurological um so i think those those are the things and also are they are they structures that i'm concerned about and i think when we've talked before the thing that really worries me about neurological toxicity is the the progressive nature of it and does that mean that we need to take things very you know do we need to act quickly you know can we monitor things for a while or is or is this something that's that's moving i think the other thing is about the real importance of assessing functional status one of my uh, my gillian barre like um patients um the way he presented was he kept dropping his mobile phone and it was getting more frequent and he'd had to buy two new mobile phones. Uh, and at that point, he thought he should ring the triage line. Now, how? I'm assuming because he didn't have a phone, which is why he didn't ring us earlier. But um, 
<laughs> but actually sort of um, particular and he was he was quite a young chap so I think one of the things is about sort of understanding that functional impairment whether it's whether it's progressing over time and what impact it has really helps us to understand and sort of hone down what bits effective and 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 and, and how seriously we're concerned about it so those are those are those are my things the things I really think about um uh, and then we, and then sort of uh, in addition to what what Mark suggested Right. Can I okay. just jump in and add something you about can. pain? You pain, can, Ricky. That, yeah, it's a useful yeah. point about the pain and, and the kind of in the myalgia in, in terms of myositis. But it's worth just noting. So in Guillain-Barré syndrome, pain can be a, a feature, particularly that sort of neuropathic pain, um, but also back pain because of the nerve root involvement. Patients can can complain of back pain. So, yeah, I think that's really helpful. And maybe and I think that's possibly a, a really important point in terms of trying to understand a bit more about pain. Now, we're pretty good at this in oncology, trying to work out whether something's neuropathic or or, or not. Um, but I think, it, again, it, as I always say in these podcasts, it all comes down to the history. But I think that's a really, really, really important point. But actually trying to understand what type of pain and often people will present on the telephone and they'll go, I just feel a bit weak and, I, and you know, and, and I hurt. And you're like, OK, well, we need to understand more about that. That's not enough information for us to be able to unpick whether what 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 structures actually affected but i think the point about back pain is really really useful and really interesting yeah and 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 really pertinent for me because that's when i had guillain beret that's how mine presented so three weeks before i presented with the the ascending weakness i i had the worst back pain of my life um and for days couldn't get a minute sleep because i just had it was like toothache in the middle of my back so i remember that back pain being the first symptom for me um Okay, interesting. Look, right, so we are at 25 minutes. So I'm going to bring this to a close. I'm going to stop you both talking about investigations until we get to the next podcast. So I'll see you shortly. Fabulous. See you there. All right.